I'll invite you to turn your Bibles with me uh, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And uh, we're just going to begin um, with reading the first two verses. And uh, we will eventually cover to verse 10 today, but uh, we'll start by reading the first two verses. So I'll invite you to join me there. Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that's Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So last week, if you remember, back in chapter 14, verse 25, we noted how great crowds, Luke says, would flock to Jesus. And now Luke draws our attention to two groups within this great crowd, two types of people that were coming that would gather to, to, gather to hear him, namely tax collectors and sinners. And these two groups were often linked together in the book of Luke. The tax collectors, of course, these were sellouts as far as the Jews were concerned. They, uh, they worked for Rome, for their occupiers. And they collected taxes on their behalf, and they would also uh, charge above and beyond the mandatory tax, and they would line their pockets. They'd often get quite wealthy this way. Um, so they were, uh, in all kinds of ways, they were, uh, they were not, uh, not good people and were looked down upon. Sinners, this is a broad category of people. Uh, this would be those who were notorious for their lawlessness, Uh, Thieves, drunkards, deceivers, and really anyone who had a dishonorable vocation. So prostitutes and tax collectors also would be part of that. In chapter 18, or sorry, 19, Zacchaeus, uh, he's a tax collector and he's also uh, called a sinner in that uh, chapter. So they would be included in this. So this is kind of the broad umbrella, sinners, and then you have tax collectors within And these people, Luke tells us, they came to hear him. They came to hear Jesus. There's something that he has to say that is of particular interest to this this group of people, to tax collectors and sinners. So much so that many of them were coming. Luke says they were all drawing near to him. Luke commonly uses that word all in this kind of exaggerated sense, meaning a lot of them were coming to him. Lots of these types of people were gathering to Jesus. But not everyone, of course, was happy about this. Not everyone was pleased that this was the case. On the two previous occasions in Luke, when tax collectors and sinners are mentioned together like this, the the context is one of complaint. There's a complaint coming to Jesus about this. And this, of course, this context is no different. In verse 2, we're told that the Pharisees... And the scribes, they grumbled about this. They complained. And what's their complaint? Their complaint is that this man receives sinners and eats with them. So to receive a person implies some sort of friendliness with them, some sort of welcoming to them. Uh, Obviously, eating with somebody does the same kind of thing. So this is their objection, that he's doing this with these types of people. Underneath this objection is a problem that's not uncommon. It's a distorted view of God. It's a distorted view of sin. It's a distorted view of oneself. 
Uh, the Pharisees, they believed that these sinners had forfeited uh, any claim to God because of their obviously lawless ways of living. And of course, uh, this, isn't in, you know, this isn't entirely false. As with all you know, the most deceptive errors, there's always some truth involved. And of course, it's true that they had in fact done this. These sinners had in fact you know, uh, forfeited any right to God. They were sinners. They were under God's condemnation justly. But the Pharisees, as a result of this, had shunned these people uh, in their minds. It's over for this group. We just leave them to the wrath of God, and we stay away from them. Uh, we don't go near them. We leave them alone. And uh, if we go near them, if we spend time with them, uh, we'll become impure like them. We don't want to do that. These people obviously have no regard for God, so we just leave them to the wrath of God. And, you know, maybe if they clean themselves up and work really, really hard, then maybe there's some hope for them. But for the most part, we just leave them. Uh, they're cursed of God, and, and we have nothing to do with them. Rather, in their minds, uh, God is for the clean. He is for the respectable ones, those who at least externally look good and are pure and have worked and tried really hard at this. These are the ones who will dine with the Messiah when he comes, when he has his banquet. Uh, these are the ones the Messiah will be pleased to welcome in and draw to himself, the ones that look good. So in the minds of these scribes and Pharisees, Sin is a big deal. Sin matters, but they limit it to these big sins, and especially these external ones. Uh, so God cares deeply about sin, they would say, clearly. You can't just live however you want. We all know that. This would, they, would, they would believe this. And so it seems on the surface, wow, they have a high view of God, they have a high view of sin. You know, God's holy, we can't just live however we want, sin is bad, um, these people seem to have it right. But, in reality, their view of God is not high enough, because they think that they themselves pass the test. They do not view themselves as sinners in need of mercy. They think they've passed the test. They've cleaned up, and they're good to go. God is pleased with us. And so to them, God is not so holy as to be searching their hearts. Sin is not so big of a problem that God will hold them to account for the lusts and hatred that is found within their own hearts. So because of all of these distortions, they see these sinners, they see these people who've not bettered themselves, they, flocking to, they flock to hear Jesus and they see this, and they have no, they cannot understand how this can be. Uh, this is simply not how it works for them. And if Jesus really was the Messiah, he would understand this and he would have nothing to do with these people. They cannot see why Jesus would spend time with these people. And so they draw their own conclusions. As we saw back in chapter 7, verse 34, one of their conclusions, he's a glutton and a drunk. That's got to be it. Why else would Jesus be with these people? Why else would he eat with them, welcome them? He's one of them. He's a glutton. He's a drunk. Or he's a friend. That is, he's an approver of tax collectors and sinners. He's right there with them. 
These are the conclusions they draw because they just don't have any concept for how this could work, how he, why he could be with them. And variations on this kind of thinking uh, has not gone away. There are still many who think this way, who think that salvation comes to those who clean themselves up, that God's standard of holiness, yes, it is set, it matters, but it's not that high in that mankind now can and must work their way up to God and meet his standard in order to get themselves into good, onto good terms with him. So these types of people would still say, yeah, you can't just live however you want. Sin matters, obviously. You've got to try. You've got to put effort into this. And those who haven't tried, those who've really blown it, those who obviously aren't trying that hard, well, you know, there's probably little chance for them. And in many cases, people who think this way actually feel better about themselves knowing there are people worse than them, right? It's like the joke that says, if you and I meet a bear in the woods, I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun you, right? So if, if God's wrath is real and it's coming for someone, I just need to be a little better than these people, God's wrath might swallow them up, but I'll be good to go. And as long as there's people worse than me, I feel like my chances are all right. My chances are not bad. Moreover, often people who hold this false view, there's a lot of pride involved, as there was for Pharisees. People think, I've worked really hard to be this clean. This has not come easy. I've tried really hard. I've had to resist certain impulses even. I haven't just gone early around, gone with the crowd. I haven't just done whatever came naturally. I've tried really hard to keep myself squeaky. And so you better too. And no sinner, no person who has not tried is going to get in ahead of me. Not a chance. This is the attitude these Pharisees certainly had. Likewise, many today think that it's avoidance of such people that's part of what commends me to God. I am not like these people, and I don't participate with them. I'm good. And in response to this, to correct this, we have three parables in a row in chapter 15, and they all make the same basic point. They all explain what Jesus was doing and why he was with these people, why he was welcoming, why he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, and why it was that they flocked to hear him. And so the first two parables are what we're going to look at today, uh, the, the lost sheep, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost coin. And next week we'll look at uh, the par parable of the prodigal son, or the two sons. Uh, it's a little more developed, there's a little more going on there, so we'll save that for next week. So I'll invite you to read with me, continue to read with me uh, in verse 3, and we'll go to the end of verse 10. So, in response to this, these objections, Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp 
and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds him. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. These parables tell us why Jesus spent time with tax collectors and sinners. And he did this because God seeks after sinners and delights in bringing them home. God seeks after sinners and he delights in finding them. The Pharisees needed a correction in their understanding of God and in his understanding of his saving activity, his saving work. And perhaps we need to be corrected as well, or perhaps we at least just need this reminder today. Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost. And he was sent on this mission by the Father. We read that earlier in John 10. It is the sick that need a doctor, Jesus said back in chapter 5. He has come to seek and save the lost. So first, let's look at how God seeks lost sinners. God seeks lost sinners. Both of these parables, they have something that is lost. There is a search for the lost item. There's the finding of the lost item. There's a subsequent rejoicing over this. And then there's an application. In the first parable, it is a shepherd who loses a sheep, one of the hundred. And it says he leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. Now it says he leaves the 99 in the open country uh, or the wilderness. Some find this troubling or a difficult uh, thing. Does this mean he leaves them in danger? This seems, is this a reckless act to you know, leave 99 in danger and, and go search for one? But I don't think that's what this is saying. It's not implying that he left the 99 in danger. It's simply saying he's left them behind because he wants to go find this one. This one matters. It's important. I think we might even assume he leaves the 99 with somebody. I don't think that would be a wrong thing to conclude. Uh, it's, not a, it's not leaving them in danger. Jesus asks the question, uh, would you not do this? Would any of you not do this? And the answer that is implied there is, yes, we would all do this if we were in that, that position. Uh, so he's not talking about some reckless thing where you abandon 99 to the wolves to go look for one. It's simply making the point that shepherds, they were accountable for their sheep, and if one went missing, they would do what they needed to do to go find it. Uh, they would leave these 99, they would go hunt for this one. And when it is found... There would be joy. There would be pick it up and carry it home on his shoulders, rejoicing. And then he, he says here, he'd call his friends and say, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Verse 7 then applies this to the joy that there is in heaven over one sinner who repents. That's the first parable. The second one, this time it's a woman. And she loses one of ten coins. This coin, this silver coin, it says, was a drachma. Uh, and, and from what I see, it's difficult to say exactly what this coin would be worth. The ESV footnote there says it was about uh, the same as a denarius, worth about a day's wage for a laborer. Um, so it's valuable enough. Jesus says, would, the, would a woman in this position not seek for these, <laughs> seek for this coin? And the answer again is yes, she would. 
He says, if she would light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it. Yes, that's what she would do. She would do whatever it takes. She'd light, turn on lamps. She'd sweep around, look for this, doing what she could to find it. And once again, when she finds it, there would be rejoicing. And again, this is applied once more to heaven's joy over a repentant sinner. And so in both of these parables, we have something goes missing, and the owner of that thing goes looking for it, goes seeking for this item. It's important to them. And it's clear that Jesus is saying that this is what God does. He seeks after the lost. And this is what Jesus was doing. That's a new one. <laughs> this is what Jesus was doing as well. This is why he ate with sinners and tax collectors. This is why they flocked to him. This is why he spent time with them. Because they are lost and he's seeking them out. He's not taking part in their sins. He's not approving of their sins. He's not a glutton. He's not a drunkard. He's not even merely just hanging out with them to have a good time. He's seeking the lost. And this idea that God is the one who seeks after the lost, this is very different. It's backwards from a lot of uh, popular notions uh, that we people are the primary seekers of God. That it is up to the human mind, the human brain, us, to figure out who God might be. And then figure out what salvation might look like for that God. Now, the Bible tells us while natural man and woman can figure out many true things about God, including his divine power, as Romans 1 says, in the end, human beings cannot actually know God simply by applying human wisdom and seeking for him. No, it is necessary for God to take the initiative and to reveal himself to humanity. And throughout the Bible, this is what we see. In fact, the Bible is God's self-revelation of himself. It is his revealing of himself to humanity. And we see him do this throughout the scriptures. Consider in Genesis, the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did Adam do? Genesis 3.8 says he hid. They hid from the presence of God. So who sought him out? God sought Adam and Eve out. Who clothed Adam and Eve? God clothed Adam and Eve. When God then promised Eve that a Messiah would come uh, from the offspring of a woman to crush the head of this serpent who has just plunged humanity into this darkness and deceived the woman and the man, did he make this promise to her in Genesis 3.15 because she sought for it? No. She and Adam had just sinned grievously. When Abraham was chosen to be the patriarch of this great nation and the one through whom the Messiah would come to bless all the peoples of the earth, all the nations of the earth, Jews and Gentiles, in Genesis 12.1-3, was this because Abraham sought God? Did he seek this from God? He did not. In fact, according to Joshua 24, verse 2, Abram and his father were idolaters. They, were, they served false gods. And God revealed himself to Abraham. He sought Abraham and chose him. 
of the nation of Israel itself, in Deuteronomy 7, 6, God declares this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. When God then later sent his apostles to the nations, to the Gentiles, to preach good news, did he do this because the Gentiles sought God? In Romans 10, Paul quotes Isaiah saying, I have been found by those who did not seek me. Speaking of the Gentiles, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Throughout history, throughout Scripture, it is God that has sought out people. And if you're trusting in Christ today, then he has also sought you out in an effectual way. And it is mankind's depravity, mankind's sin that makes God's seeking of us necessary. And while the Pharisees can see something of the sinfulness of the sinners and tax collectors, they don't know the extent of their own depravity that resides in their own hearts. The Bible is clear, Romans 3, 10 and 11, that there is nobody who seeks after God, there is nobody who does good. And this makes it imperative that if anyone will ever find God, it requires the fact that God is the one who will first go find them. And even as we sang, I love you because you first love me. And this is our great hope, that God does seek sinners. He does not merely stand back and give us what we deserve. The Father has sent His Son, Jesus, into the world to reveal Himself to us in the image of His Son, and so that His Son would purchase redemption for all who would believe. Again, as we read earlier, Jesus is the good shepherd who goes after the sheep. God seeks and saves lost sinners. And this, that's basically the gospel. That's basically a summary of the gospel. And if we just stop here for a moment, we are familiar with this, these parables. We are familiar with these ideas. But if you just consider for a moment, just, you know... We get busy, we get distracted, lots of cares come across you know, our path, lots of legitimate things we have to do and figure out, but just stop again for a moment and consider the fact that God Almighty has sought you out, if you believe. It's remarkable, really. We deserve to be crushed, and God has not treated you according to to your sins according to what you deserve. It's remarkable. The king does not need to throw a banquet, and if he did, he does not need to invite any of us. It's purely of grace. And yet in his graciousness and kindness, in his mercy, God does come for the lost. 
And so really, there is no place for astonishment that Jesus would be found with sinners, in one sense. Because this is what God does. It's not astonishing, in the sense that the notoriously sinful people of Jesus' day would be found flocking to hear him in great number. Because he had a message that was good news for them, for sinners. They weren't too far gone. They weren't, things weren't hopeless for them. There was hope. And he was offering that to them. And again, these are the poor, the crippled, the blind and lame from previous weeks who were being welcomed into the kingdom of God, who were being welcomed to the banquet of the Messiah. So then we can acknowledge sin. We can even confirm that a person may indeed be living in a, a particularly egregiously sinful lifestyle. We can acknowledge that to be true, but we also remember that God has sent His Son Jesus to rescue those types of people, namely sinners. And the gospel that we believe, the gospel that we proclaim is good news for those people. And so I just, I would issue one caution as we, I think, rightly um, engage in debate, wherever that is, workplace, wherever it might be, within our society, as we watch society more and more approve of that which is just straight up evil before God, as we watch things getting worse, and we engage with that, and we might even argue that something is wrong, um, just I would caution us not to lose sight of the fact that the gospel is for such people. The gospel is for such sinners. That is the hope. To just remember that, even as we engage in these discussions, that ultimately we would, we would have them agree that this is sin so that they might flee to the Savior. The gospel is for people in our society. And of course... Even before we deal with other people, we need to deal with our own hearts honestly before the Lord. We are sinful by God's standards, even if we haven't descended into some of the most base forms of immorality, some of the worst sins you can think of. Perhaps we've lived a somewhat clean life on the outside by most accounts. We are still sinful. And we'll see this even more next week as we get into the the, uh, the older son who stays home versus the prodigal brother. This is precisely the point Jesus will make to these Pharisees, that their self-righteousness is every bit as damning as the one who's just flown headlong into sin. So we all need this grace from God. And that God is the God who seeks after sinners. This is also an explanation of the Great Commission. God seeks people, and he has created a church that he has told to go out into the world and do this very thing, proclaim the gospel, bring this message of hope for sinners, and make disciples of all nations. So the reason we do this, the reason we evangelize, the reason we support missions, is because God seeks people out. 
And he uses the means of the gospel to draw people into himself, to find them, to bring them home. And so if God is a seeking God, then it makes sense, it logically follows that we, his people, are a seeking people, seeking sinners to come home. So God seeks the lost. Secondly, God delights in bringing sinners home. God delights in bringing sinners home. It's not just that God grudgingly and reluctantly allows people to come back. Rather, this is depicted here as the very joy of heaven when people come home. We know what it is to be persuaded to do something we don't really want to do. We say things like, well, I guess so. Yeah, I'll do that. Right? And inwardly, I don't want to, but I will do this thing because I have to, or you really want me to, or you've nagged me enough, or whatever it is. We know what that is. I guess I'll do it. But that's not God's attitude when sinners come home. Notice all the references to joy and to rejoicing in these verses. So verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Verse 6, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Verse 7, for I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine who need no repentance. Now, I'll just give this note here. There's some difficulty here just determining who these ninety-nine are that don't need repentance that are mentioned here. It could be, uh, as some say, uh, that, that the 99 are simply uh, believers who uh, aren't in need of the initial repentance that comes with conversion. And this could just simply be pointing out the heightened joy uh, when grace first comes to a person, when the lost person is first found. Uh, that's possible. But I think maybe more likely... It refers, ironically, it's, it's ironically being aimed at the Pharisees. He's saying there's joy over a sinner who repents rather than people like you who don't think you have any need for repentance. So if you think of uh, in chapter 18, uh, verse 9, Jesus tells a parable there. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And then he gives an example of, of, the, of a Pharisee. A Pharisee who prays to God. And he says, I thank you God that I am not like all these other people. I, I have not treated other people in these horrible ways. I've not committed all these sins. I've done a lot of great things. In other words, I have no need of repentance. Thank you God, I'm not like these, these tax collectors and awful people. This person, this Pharisee, thinks he has no need of repentance. And I think that's probably what Jesus is getting at here. And this man in, in chapter 18, it says that he's not justified before God. He sees no need for repentance, sees no need for this, but he's not actually right with God. And I think, again, as we get into next week and we look at the older brother, I think that's what the older brother is going to illustrate this. He's saying there's joy in heaven over one person who repents and over these 99 who have you think they have no need for this. Regardless, however you would understand the 99, the point here not to miss in this is that there's joy in heaven over this one sinner who repents. 
The references to joy continue. Verse 9, when a woman has found the coin, she likewise calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found the coin that was lost. In verse 10, again, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God does not grudgingly, the Father does not grudgingly send His Son. He does not grudgingly receive sinners back to Himself. Again, if you think ahead to the prodigal son, the Father does what? He runs to the Son. Right? He's running joyfully. The Son thinks, maybe He'll let me back. And the, fa the Father is running to Him to welcome Him back. He's slaughtering the animal to celebrate it. God's not grudgingly receiving sinners. He's welcoming them in. This was his plan from before the foundation of the world to bring sinners back to himself. And it is said in these verses to be the very joy of heaven when a sinner is found. And so one might think, could I really, could I really come home? Would heaven really rejoice knowing what I've done? I know what I've done, a fraction of the sins I've committed. I know the kinds of thoughts that have gone through my head. I know the kinds of things I've done. I know the secret things nobody else even knows about. Could God possibly rejoice to welcome me back? And this says yes. This says yes. Sometimes we think how God must simply tolerate us. But such is the grace of God that he rejoices over the lost being found. I think it's also a good place for us to ask ourselves, if we've been found, we're, we're grateful for this. It's a good place to ask ourselves, is it also our joy at the thought of other people coming home? At the thought of others also being welcomed home? Does it cause rejoicing in you to think of that? To think of other people coming in? To think of other people getting saved? Perhaps we need to recover or maybe gain for the first time even um, some joy in that, that prospect, in that thought. In the joy that could, that's part of evangelism even. For many of us, that is a, a, an oppressive and weighty command. But seeking and finding the lost is what God does. And when they come home, it's the very joy of heaven. So let us pray that we would be people who rejoice in what God rejoices at. Notice also in these verses, uh, as we see that God delights in bringing sinners home, notice that being found and coming home involves repentance. In verses 7 and 10, the one who is found is the sinner who repents. Repentance is a change of heart. It's a change of mind. It's the recognition that I am a sinner, that I'm justly under the condemnation and wrath of Almighty God for my deeds. It's agreement with God's verdict on this matter. He's right in this. It's agreeing with His verdict that hangs over our souls, over our lives, over what we've done. It is to say what He says is true and I'm in agreement, my sin is not okay, what I've done is not okay. It involves turning then from those sins. Repentance is sometimes said to be the flip side 
uh, of the coin from faith. These two are, are linked, can't join, divide them. They're inseparable. Repentance then would be turning from that sin uh, and turning to Christ in faith. Recognizing that God's provision for uh, our sins is Christ and receiving Him by faith. This faith, this repentance and faith, this is the means by which a sinner receives pardon from God. And, and we know repentance is a lifelong reality for a believer. Whenever we find sin in our, our hearts, to confess that to God, repent of that. Um, but here in, in these verses, the sinner who repents is the person who experiences that initial moment of, of, of conversion, that initial moment of turning from their sins, placing their faith in Christ. And there's joy over this. Again, Jesus is not going along with sin. He's not approving of the lives of these sinners that he's with. Rather, he's calling them to repentance. That's what finding them is. Uh, the notion of coming to God just as I am, uh, this is greatly abused and misunderstood today. Uh, to, for, for many, coming to God just as I am is, uh, well, is I come to God just as I am um, because God approves of me just as I am. He loves me the way I am. I ain't got to change nothing. Why would I? You know, I am me. To be anything else would be to deny myself. You know, that's not right, so I, you know, come just as you are. And, and sometimes Christians inadvertently send this signal, right? God loves you, just come. Okay, I'll come as I am. But this is, not, this is not what the Bible teaches. That's not what's happening here. It's a far cry from the old hymn, which says, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. The author of the hymn was not suggesting that we have a lax attitude about sin and we just, we just come as we are. No, it's clear these are dark spots, they are blemishes, they leave us without a plea before God. I have nothing I can say. They are sins which we cannot possibly overcome on our own. We come as we are, but we come in lowly repentance for what we are. Knowing we have no hope if God is not gracious to us in Christ. Knowing that we are dirty and in need of cleansing. We are in need of the forgiveness that can only come through the blood of Christ. That's the only plea we can make. We do not and we cannot clean ourselves up first before we come. We come bringing our debts and we come in repentance for those debts. And this is the person who is found in these parables. The sinner who repents. That's actually the author of that hymn. That was actually uh, so lady. She was uh, challenged with that. She was challenged with the fact that you know, she came to realize that she was trying to clean herself up before she would say, I, I, I come to the Lord. 
and and uh, a minister, a pastor, told her. She, he just said, "Just come, just come as you are." And she got to thinking about that. She was offended at first, and then she got to thinking about that, and ended up writing this hymn and realizing she can't clean herself up first. That's not how we're to come to Christ. We come with our sin. We come as sinners, and we confess that, and we know our only hope is Christ and His blood and the fact that God says, "Come." So God is the one who seeks out and saves the lost. This is how Jesus characterized his mission. In, in chapter 19, we're going to get to a very similar complaint from the same group of people about Zacchaeus, who's a sinner, and a very similar response. Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is one of Luke's main emphases throughout his gospel, is to draw our attention to this fact. That there is hope for those who have sat in darkness, who are in sin. And so it's no surprise then that sinners were flocking to hear Jesus speak. His message was good news for them. And this is what makes it good news. We can't do anything about it. We can't do anything about our sin. We're hopeless in our sin, except that Christ has come he has died for sinners. Because of that, there is hope. And it continues to be good news for sinners that there is forgiveness of sin. There is a way to be made right. And God is the one who has made this way for the vilest of us to be made clean, for the most lost among us to come home. That God is a missionary God so do not stay away because you are dirty. Come to him now. Come in full confession of your sin. Full confession of your uncleanness without one plea, but that Christ has shed his blood for thee. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are sinners. That when we look into your holy word and your holy law, we see that we are sin-stained, that we are blotted, and we are in need of cleansing. And we are thankful to you that you have sent Christ to bring about cleansing. Thank you that there is hope for sinners. And Father, I pray that you would help us to rejoice in this. I pray that it would be our delight that there is hope for sinners. And Father, forgive us for where we fear man more than you, where we allow the fear of man to trump our joy in proclaiming good news to others. Father, I pray that we would that we would continually and constantly put this hope before sinners. That even as we interact with people who want to say that egregious sin is good and right and okay, and even as we argue that it's wrong, that we would also be seeking to extend the good news to them that there is hope for sinners. Father, I pray that we would be those who rejoice in the things that you rejoice at. And we see clearly that it is your joy to, to find lost sinners. 
And God, I pray that even as we go out, as we are at work, as we prepare come some milder days to go out again and, and reach our neighbors, we just we pray that you would sustain us, that you give us joy in all of these things, joy in these efforts, that wherever we have opportunity and are able to speak of the gospel to people, to speak of, of the fact that you seek and save lost people, I pray that you'd sustain us, that you'd, again, make this our delight. Father, may we never despise any, any sinner that would desire to come home, but that we would be those who would throw our arms open and welcome them in, as that's what you would do. Father, we pray that you would do work of, of repentance in people yet in this city who don't know you, in other places where we, I mean, all around, Lord, in our province, in these times that appear very dark, help us to remember that you have shone very brightly in other similar dark times in other places in the world. And may we not lose hope. And may we rejoice at your finding of us, and may we rejoice when others are found. Father, we, we, we just we thank you. We have no words to, uh, to offer that could repay. We have nothing we can do could repay the kindness you've shown us. And so we just praise you and we thank you. And we pray all this together in Christ's name. Amen.